Co-Selling Hero, hosted by real estate veteran Tom Didion. Each week, we break down today's ultra-hot home seller's market and give you the tips, tricks, and guidance to navigate the selling process and get the most out of selling your home. Proudly presented by the Tom Didion team. Let's jump in. Greetings and moyen, everybody. Welcome back to the Home Selling Hero podcast. I am your host, Tom Didier with Remax Real Estate. And that handsome gentleman in the other window, his name is Jeff Hoffman. He is my first commercial guest. Most of my listeners are used to listening to tips and tricks about residential real estate. So Hoff, you are the first person on my show that is going to wow us with commercial real estate information. My listeners are used to me saying that commercial real estate is a whole different ballgame, which I think you'll probably agree it is. So we'll talk about the differences. But Jeff, why don't you go ahead and just take two minutes to introduce to yourself and my listeners who you are. I appreciate you welcoming me on here, Tom. And uh, I've been in commercial real estate for now completing my 22nd year. I started right out of college, uh, UW-Whitewater. How I got an intro was it interesting story. So when I was a sophomore in college, between my sophomore and junior year, my parents were in the process of selling their home. So uh, the realtor they hired at the time, uh, let's just say, and it wasn't you, Tom, or anybody part of your team. The person they hired at that time drove the nicest car, dressed the nicest, and put on the best dog and pony show. And that's who they hired and uh, proceeded to have a, a very, very poor transaction for several months. It took much longer than they thought, didn't perform to where they had presented that. And uh, so we're a traditional blue collar family. It was very stressful to them. They still, they bought the house they wanted to go to without having sold their house. I was in school, a very, very stressful time. So I knew I wanted to get into business at uh, Whitewater, didn't know what. So I signed up uh, for the intro to commercial real estate class. And the professor was an active office leasing professional in uh, the city of Madison. Mm-hmm. And the moment I walked into that class and he just on the, at the time it was a blackboard, I'd uh, go up, he'd just walking through a deal he was negotiating and I just latched onto that uh, right away. So I, I, I grasped it, got it, was very fascinated. I, d- I didn't necessarily want to get into the residential side. I'm uh, much more of a non-emotional, mm-hmm. the, the facts are the facts. And I just uh, like the dealing with and talking to business owners who kind of come at it from the same same mindset. So I uh, went through the track of a business finance degree with an emphasis in real estate. And I was very fortunate. Uh, my last semester in college, I was able to pick up an internship with a local boutique firm in Waukesha County, uh, Judson and Associates. And uh, I go back to Whitewater and uh, teach at least once a semester to uh, the real estate classes. It was very big in, in what our professor did as well. He bring in uh, people that actively were engaged in commercial real estate, whether development, lending, brokers talk about the career. So I like to give back that way. But uh, I, I joke to the kids, uh, I graduated on a Saturday. Uh, I was extremely hungover on a Sunday and I started full time on a Monday and the rest was history. I From day one, I just loved what I did. So I was with the Judson family for 14 years and had an opportunity to uh, lead the industrial practice at Cushman Wakefield Berkey, which I'm coming up on my eight year anniversary here okay. in January. We built a pretty impressive team. So our Cushman Wakefield Berkey, we're 101 years old now. We have uh, we cover all the uh, commercial real estate food groups, office, retail, medical office, land development, and industrial. 
my team only focuses on industrial and then uh with industrial we do a lot of the land side but again it's going to be for industrial development yeah. not general purpose yeah. so i'll come up for air there and let you ask some questions you, well it's, it's a good summary and you hit on a couple of things so you mentioned like all the little i didn't write them down but in the commercial business there's so many different sectors you know restaurant people are restaurant people retail um you're in the industrial side and have you been doing that have you, you have a little bit of everything or have you always done just industrial? When I started in the business, Judson's were more of a boutique firm. And with boutique firms, you really are more of a generalist. Yeah. However, the Judson's were focused predominantly on industrial. But as I was building my business, um, let's just say 70% of it was on the industrial side. And then I'd get involved in an office deal, a retail deal. You meet people, you get an introduction. And you certainly have the, the capabilities and the resources to do those deals. What I found, though, as, as I grew with the business, I was really attracted to industrial. And uh, just with more and more opportunities, um, if you really align well with a, a certain asset class, becoming a specialist is really the way to go in our business. Um, that's kind of what, what I tell uh, when we hire new recruits into our office. We always suggest, hey, take a good six to 12 months to observe different practice groups within the office and then try to figure out what you're really passionate about and you want to become a subject matter expert mm -hmm. in that particular industry vertical. And uh, which I think at the end of the day with uh, some of the clientele we deal with, are going to be more institutional in nature. Um, you know, they're dealing with portfolios of you know, one of our biggest clients has 500 million square feet of industrial space across the United States. They know when they're talking to uh, an industry vertical specialist versus just a generalist. I mean, I don't have a Harvard degree, so I can only process so much at one time. And again, when with the clientele, they can tell when they're dealing with a specialist right. that knows a vertical better than anybody versus a generalist that's trying to piece together um, all the different uh, types of intricacies of a different submarket, different asset class. There's a million deals and we can't hit them on all, but you talked about the difference between commercial and, and residential. You used the word emotion. I would totally agree that, you know, what I do mostly for a living can be super emotional for the home sellers. Um, but the time period, you know, our relationships with our sellers many times are 30 to 60 days. How long is an industrial deal? It seems to me that what's, what's your longest <laughs> deal that actually closed? I mean, you guys work on deals for a long, long time. You know, that's that's a great question. I, I had a situation, Tom, last week, and I, and I told one of our recent hires this story about um, in commercial, the gestation period to develop relationships is much longer, yeah. much, much longer. And you know, what I would tell you is getting started on your own, uh, what we tell uh, new hires is it's going to take you at least probably six to nine months before you're getting your first commercial lease executed. Okay. If you're lucky by months, nine to 12, you might have a couple of closings take place, but by the end of your first year in business, if you have, you know, six trans, and if you're not part of a dedicated team where you're just sharing everything, if you had six transactions closed by the end of your first year, you're, you're doing great. We usually say by year three, there should be kind of that hockey stick growth curve and between year three to five, you start taking off, and by that time frame, you should be doing 20 to 30 transactions, say, between your third and fifth year, and that should be pretty consistent thereafter. And if you're not hitting those numbers, it's going to be pretty hard to survive on your own if you're not part of a, right. a greater team doing more of the transaction management. But going back to the story, told one of our younger professionals, 
Um, I was leasing a building for a gentleman back in 2005. Um, did a great job for me, for him. Uh, he remembered me, liked what I did for him. He ends up owning several hundred acres in an area that uh, we're interested in and just timing and life worked out. He had a lease burning off on it. And we had a great meeting last week to talk about the, the opportunity. And he said, I always remembered the service you provided for me. Um, you were straight, you were to the point, and you did exactly what you said you were going to do. And so here I am, you know, 15 years later, we're working with him potentially yeah. on the assignment because he remembered that. So said it's uh, not necessarily the deals that you push your clients into, but it's the deals that you may tell your client not to do or right. your future client not to do that, that they come out and give you a little bit more respect. And again, that's where I think you can differentiate yourself in the business is, listen, my sales agent, uh, we get paid by getting deals done, but at the end of the day, you need to develop longstanding relationships and you got to build that trust with people. So after 15 years, yeah, you obviously still came top of mind when this guy needed another commercial agent. So that, that just shows that if you do treat a customer well and you do it right and you do it professionally and you made an impact on him because he, he found you again. Um, but what about the actual length of each transaction? What would you say in your, on a sale sure. or a lease? Cause you do, if I understand correctly, you do, your deals are industrial leases and industrial sales, correct? Correct. And correct. A traditional state. Yeah. So what we would tell people from start to finish, um, let's just say we onboard XYZ company today saying, Hey, we have a need for, 20,000 square feet of space in a normally functioning market where there's available inventory, uh, especially on the purchase side, uh, that transaction is going to take, you're going to be touring for about 30 to 60 days, just see the market, understand the market. You'll start negotiating letters of intent or an offer to purchase. That's usually going to be a three to four week period. And then your traditional diligence period of where you're doing your inspections, lining up financing, getting municipal approvals, that's anywhere between 60 to 90 days. So start to finish, it's a six to nine month process. It's three times the length. And obviously that's a, um, depends on the market you're in too, right? I mean, right now, residential real estate, we list a house. If we properly price it, you know, we should go under contract within a couple of weeks and then we're closing 45 days after that. So you, you're about three times the length of time it takes. And is that true for both leasing and purchasing industrial buildings? Yeah, and I think the big differentiator would be uh, dealing with uh, more of a smaller businesses that is led by an owner-operator. So the president, CEO of the company is also the owner of the company who has the authority to make decisions, right? So it's, all right, I my business, uh, I have 20 employees. I want to go buy the 20,000-square-foot building. I make the decision. I deal with the bank. Right. They can move very quickly. When we're dealing with larger companies, manufacturing operations in particular, and this is educating our, our clients, our landlord and developer clients, and also the sellers, manufacturers by nature, you're dealing with machines, you're dealing with process lines, you're dealing with multiple different departments. That's where it can get very, very complicated. And there's a tremendous amount of planning that goes on behind the yeah. scenes with manufacturers. Anybody that makes something to move a manufacturing operation and even not that big of one, I mean, you can easily get to a half million dollars to a million dollars just to pick up and relocate a machine shop. By the time you pick up the machines, move them, get all the electricity situated, it's it's an incredibly cumbersome process for for these people to go through. And so, what we always uh, joke with manufacturers is, and with why landlords want to own manufacturing buildings is the only time they need to move is when they're completely out of space mm -hmm. or if they're closing their doors. Right. So it's it's 
it's one of the two. If it's business as usual, um, you're, you're typically not going to lose them as a tenant because, again, it's just so disruptive to move that kind of operation. Have a house to sell, but not sure who to trust when it comes to getting the best deal and leveraging the current market? Trust the experts at the Tom Didier team. With over a quarter century of selling Milwaukee, Tom and his team of real estate experts are here to ensure that you get every penny you deserve out of selling your home. No matter where you live in the dairy state, put one of Wisconsin's top real estate teams to work for you in selling your home and making the most of your real estate investment. Looking to buy a house instead? Tom and his team have you covered here as well, helping you craft and perfect the offer on your dream home. Visit SellingMilwaukee.com to find out how much your home could be worth and connect with the team to make your next real estate transaction a dream. Now, back to the show. Since COVID, how has industrial changed? And has it changed forever, or are we still in a temporary mode? Are we still adapting? Well, that's a great question, Tom. Um, So when I got into the business in 2000, industrial real estate was for the C students. So it wasn't all that sexy or exciting, um, but it was a great career path for me. Now, I wasn't a C student. At least I'm not going to show you my transcripts. (laughs) But at the time, and there's a point to this, at the time, retail was where everybody wanted to be in. At the time, uh, shopping malls, power centers, uh, Kohl's department store as an example, they were building 200,000 square foot stores everywhere. Um, so everybody wanted to be in that vertical couple of moments. Multifamily has been pretty good. Uh, you know, this very well, the mid two thousands, everybody wanted to be selling residential land. So big farms, 60, hundred acres, the residential developers couldn't get enough of them because of the financing climate at the time. Couple in Milwaukee, not as big, but urban office, uh, downtown urban office, huge driver, a couple areas in a couple areas of the market for the past couple decades industrials moment in the sun is right now. Um, so what happened with COVID, obviously most offices were shut down. A lot of retail right. was shut down, but you and I and everybody else we knew continued to order uh, product online. Sure. So the e-commerce wave that transitioned a lot of product that would have formerly been housed in a retail store now being housed in a warehouse. Um, so that was a huge driver for several years. That was the Amazon effect. Amazon has since pulled back this year just because they've built up such a huge network. So they've been out of the market, but everybody else is playing catch up. So a big driver of industrial demand is going to be called third-party logistics. These are the logistics operators, the trucking companies, the trucks you see on the road uh, that everybody curses up and down. A lot of communities don't want trucking in their neighborhoods, but the way we've evolved as consumers, we need these trucks to, to get our products on a timely basis. So that's been a big driver. And really the, the thing that um, I think anecdotally we thought was going to happen, and we are truly seeing this happen right now, um, I mentioned back when I started in the early 2000s, a lot of manufacturing, especially for the larger global companies, was getting outsourced overseas. That was really a big wave of, all right, we've got our existing footprint in the Americas. We need to go open up plants in China, India, wherever else that might be. Because of what happened with COVID and all of the supply chain challenges that we've had here, and also with some of the geopolitical unrest going on right now in China, Russia, Ukraine, uh, we are definitely seeing this wave of onshoring activity. Uh, We have seen substantial investments 
by manufacturing companies. Um, even if it's not a move per se, it's putting an addition on a plant, ordering new robotics, new automation material. Uh, a huge wave of investment is occurring right now in, in U.S. industrial base. You had mentioned, um, well, maybe you didn't, maybe I'm thinking of something else, but you mentioned the word institutional buyers, and we've noticed on the residential side there has been an influx of cash from other countries coming in, and there are now institutional buyers uh, that represent single-family investments. Is it true on the industrial side? Do you, do you have um, money coming in from outside the country to purchase your giant industrial buildings that you represent, or is it just coming right from the, the businesses themselves? Yeah, uh, probably more of as a passive investment. So what the, one of the biggest changes that I've seen over the past decade is I'd, I'd call it the institutionalization of uh, the ownership side. Another thing that happened with COVID, because a lot of the investors got out of office, got out of retail, that money had to go somewhere. So everybody wanted to be an industrial. So we have seen some sovereign wealth money um, get parked as passive investment vehicles, but it's going to be operated by a, a U.S. partner that that understands and gets to learn markets. So, yeah, so we're not dealing with that end uh, sovereign wealth money, but we are dealing through their U.S. partners. As with anything, once it becomes institutionalized, and you're probably seeing this on the residential the rules of the game change, right? So it's much more about the, the the black and white finances of the deal. Hey, non-emotional is good. Yeah, when a when a company, yeah, when the buyer has an LLC between after their name, that deal is a little bit less emotional. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. And Tom, what I'd say is, you know, back in the day with a lot of landlords I worked with, you know, Tom, you're my tenant. You know, you have an air conditioning unit that goes out, okay? And you call me up, air conditioning unit went out, and we'll say, let's go to the lease. The lease says, you as the tenant are supposed to replace that. And you say, well, I've been a great tenant. Finance are a little tight. Can you take care of that? And I'll say, yeah, I'll take care of that for you, Tom. When it's institutionalized like it is, usually the lease document governs. And you can call me and plead with me as the asset manager, but at the end of the day, you're going to say, listen, Tom, you signed the lease. It's on you, so take care of it. So it, it takes, again, it takes the emotion right. ship and a lot of the relationship out as much as you want to say it's a, on that, you, you're going to leverage your relationship. At this moment in time, uh, vacancy rates for an industrial real estate are 3.5%, if not lower, depending on the asset class and location. You as a landlord know it's a supply and demand equation. It's part of an economic cycle right now. Again, the industrial side, um, it's not going to be like this forever, but I think right now we're in a sweet spot for hopefully another 12 to 24 months. Yeah, you've always said, you've told me, I can't even remember which way it goes, but commercial trails behind residential, correct? The, the residential market changes first, and then you guys are always like six or 12 months behind. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, great. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me that because we're having these conversations right now as we look with what's going on on the on the landscape. So uh, give you a case in point. So back in uh, 2008, right yeah. before the world shut right. down. So the, the capital markets started going haywire in fall of 2007. And if you followed it going into that spring of 2008, you were probably already seeing we got big problems on the horizon. I was actually having my best personal year up until about July 31st of 2008. Yep. And then everything just shut down. Yep. And then by, I think it was September 21st, Lehman Brothers is folding and, you know, we're passing tarp and we're on the precipice of just financial disaster, right. which uh, triggered the, the, with the, the great recession, which was a, a very, very difficult time. And you lived through it, yep. but 
that was a real estate caused recession. And uh, that most certainly took us a few years to work our ways out of that yeah, one. And we'd, I've been telling people ask, I'm sure they ask you too, right? They ask us to predict the future and where's it going. And I said, I don't know what the future brings. I just know that there's a lot of, a lot of demand out there. Um, not much supply, a lot of demand. And I also know that uh, the bank's on the residential side are in a pretty good position. They, they have not over leveraged themselves. People mm-hmm. have considerable equity yeah. out there. So ever since Dodd-Frank, which there's a lot of bad stuff that came from it, but um, some of the lending practices on, on my side that I've seen have been, um, they've protected people. So, and the banks themselves too. So I don't, I have no idea. Um, there could be a correction, a slowdown, incline, decline, but um, there's still a lot of demand out there for housing. We're, we're short on housing units, period. Um, which is a good segue to a question I have for you, um, which is, you know, the realtors have come up with some good ideas and proposed bills that would allow um, a lot of these vacant commercial spaces to get converted into residential housing. Have you personally seen that in Southeast Wisconsin at all? Is that actually happening? Any examples you can point to? You know, I don't have specific examples, but I think, especially on the office side, I am not a big believer that the office is going to return to what it was in January of 2020 anytime soon. Um, our, our office is located in central business district, downtown Milwaukee. Yeah. By and large Northwestern mutual and some of the big employers have called employees back, but it's definitely different. Uh, there's the, the flex model, meaning you can come in, go, we just want to see you two or three days a week. There are certainly not the demands on the office space side of the ledger and anecdotally with a lot of the bigger corporations, which drive a lot of the office leasing, a lot of them are just fine with, with the virtual workplace and uh, the, that flex kind of scheduling that they're going to have. Totally different conversation. I don't know how sustainable it is, but we're, we're going to see this over the near term, Tom. So some of these office buildings in particular, which would lend themselves better for a, a reuse or a conversion, and you're probably talking multifamily condos, but th- there's going to be some opportunities with that. Most, most certainly. Um, on the retail side of it, I would see those more as teardowns, potential teardowns and redeveloped into more dense. And, and I think the key solution here with any of it, especially if you're getting um, state or municipal dollars involved any way we, you can or, or even federal, uh, you have to go for density. I mean, there is a glaring gap in what we'd call workforce affordable housing. Um, you know, I'm out in the middle of Waukesha County. Everybody complains, hey, we don't have servers. We don't have this. We don't have that. Um, I've, I've done some work on this, and most starting wages right now are seventeen and nineteen bucks an hour for your traditional blue collar service jobs, and that's high. I mean, that that's gone up four or five bucks an hour since uh, the onset of the pandemic. At the end of the day, you can't afford housing in Waukesha County at making eighteen bucks an hour on your own accord. You just can't. So, um, unless these communities really start looking at, all right, how do we? Re- attract more workforce housing development, we're going to continue to have these workforce challenges. It's an interesting point that uh, it's possible that those people that are complaining about lack of workers in the service industry may or may not be the exact same people that are the first to complain when we come up with a proposed housing development. And you can call it whatever you want, you know, affordable housing, low-income housing, workforce housing. There's probably 10 different, you know, definitions you could apply to it but it's certainly a challenge we have a lack of housing period everything we have a lack of everything i think we have a shit ton of content still to cover 
With that being said, we're signing off. Always remember to use a local lender. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to Home Selling Hero. For more, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and connect with Tom across LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have a question about selling your home or buying your next one, reach out to Tom at tom at tomdidier.com or call or text him directly at 414-881-3290. Home Selling Hero is a production of Tom Didier Real Estate in partnership with Westport Studios. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any information presented during the course of discussion is presented as reliable under the laws of the state of Wisconsin. Be sure to consult a local agent in order for any nuances where you may live.